You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, so if you've got your Bible, um, flip to a couple of different places. Uh, place number one, John 12, Isaiah chapter 6. And you might even go ahead and put something in Revelation chapter 1. We're eventually going to kind of wrap it up um, over in that part of the Bible. And so, okay, if you have been with us for a while, um, you, you, we're in the middle of a set of sermons on change where we're kind of working through how God uses the gospel to work change in our hearts. Okay, this is the big topic we've been on. This is um, week number seven of all that. And so in the midst of that, to try to help illustrate several of these different kind of ideas, we've just introduced you to fictitious people. So we've had the angry guy, we've had the anxious lady, the um, addicted guy, the always right guy. I mean, we've had all these people. So we've got our last one coming to you this morning. Um, that after the service, another person catches you. This is the I'm caving to peer pressure teenager, right? That, that's, who, that's who catches you at the service. And, and here's how the conversation goes. He comes to you and he says, uh, okay, he, here's my situation. I've got an issue. I've got two sets of friends. Okay, now, now set number one, I've known them for all of my life, right? When, when we were little, we were all kind of in line and straight-laced. But as we've grown a little bit older, it's gotten out of control. We are the rebellious, law-breaking version of a teenager. Okay, that's this group of friends. And then he's got this other group that he knows at church. So this church group, they're still the straight-laced. They're still morally, they're, they're still in line, all, all of that. And so he looks at it and he says, the weirdest things happens when I get around these two groups of people. When I'm around this crew, I blend in, like I'm a chameleon. I look like them, I talk like them, I think like them, I carry my Bible like them, I everything like them. I, their, their stuff has just become my stuff. I blend right into that crew. But if I'm over here in this crew, I'm a, compl- I'm a different person. Like my language instantly shifts my behavior instantly shifts. Like their language becomes my language. Their thoughts become my thoughts. Their behavior becomes my behavior. I mean, whatever they say, I'm in with it. I mean, I just blend right into them. I mean, it's, it's the weirdest thing. Like if, if you took this group of friends and, and you kind of took them and dragged them into church world with me and let, let them see me, they would not know who I am. And then if you take these church people and, and you kind of get them to trellis on a Friday night, they would have no clue that I am this other person on a Friday night. And he looks at me, he says, what, what's my issue? Well, I mean, what is the problem with being, like, what is this? And okay, so, so this question is huge for us. Like he, essentially he is asking, diagnose what my deal is. And if you miss the diagnosis, you miss everything. It's impossible to give an accurate cure if you have an inappropriate diagnosis. And so if your thoughts start going, well, I think it's like this one friend over here, he's kind of that bad influence. And so if your solution to the issue, your problem deals with circumstances, that it's, that it's this group, it's that group, it's, it, we've missed the diagnosis. And here's what we've tried to say over the last seven or eight weeks, that the heart is always the heart of the problem, that the issue is a belief issue. Deep down inside of him, he is trusting and treasuring something above Jesus. He's banking on and depending on something other than Jesus to save him. I can, this is idolatry language, this trust and treasure thing. I, rather than looking at Jesus as his trust and his treasure, he, he is looking to the approval of people, the acceptance to this group, the acceptance to that group as what he's trusting in and treasuring in to save him. Do you see what's happening here? And so we tried to show this graph, and I want to show it to you one more time today, just to help give you a, a grid to kind of help see this. 
And so if you take the top of the screen, this is behavior. So peer pressure for him would fit at the top of the screen. His issue is he's got this fear of man thing. He's got this, this okay, this, this group, I'm, I'm like this, that group, I'm, this is his behavior issue. But here's what we're trying to say. Behavior is never the ultimate problem. It is a problem, but it's never the ultimate problem. But, see, if all we do is address his behavior, we're dealing with the, with the, with the pain, not the problem. See, the problem goes deeper than his behavior. It goes to the bottom of the screen. It goes to his heart. Like his behavior is linked to his heart. He's trusting and treasuring in something other than Jesus. And so this is what it looks like in this situation. And by the way, both Jesus, God, and the gospel offer promises and warnings. And on the other side, false gods and false gospels offer promises and warnings. And so from, from this side, God would be offering this promise. Because of Jesus, if you're a believer, because of Jesus, I'm giving you everything you need for life and godliness. Because of what Jesus has done for you, you have all the acceptance, all the approval that you crave. And then here's be the warning from God. You can look for it in a thousand different areas, but you're not going to find it. You, you go looking elsewhere, it's going to wreck your life. And here's the promise of, of a false gospel, of false gods, idols, this approval, idolatry, fear of man. It's going to say, if, if you want the, if you, you know, the, the craving you have, if you want satisfaction for that craving of approval, you have to do whatever it takes to fit into that group. And when you get in that group, you have to do whatever it takes to stay in that group. So whatever you have to do morally, whatever you have to say with your mouth, whatever you have to do to stay in that group, to get the approval and stay in the approval of those people, you do whatever it takes and you will be satisfied. You, you'll, you're, that, that craving your heart will be quenched. And here's the warning from, from that false gospel. If you do not get the acceptance of those people, if you cannot bust into that ring of people, your life is not worth living. See, this is the issue. It's always bigger than behavior. It goes down to his belief. And this is why we say that every issue is a gospel issue. Every time we see weird behavior, it's always linked to not believing in part or a piece of the gospel. See, it's always like that. That's why John Calvin said, we're all partly unbelievers. Talking to believers, we're partly all unbelievers until we die. That we're not believing in a part or a piece of the gospel. See, it's not enough to tell our teenager, stop doing that. What's your problem, right? It's not enough to tell him that. It's not enough just to address his behavior. His issue is his belief. This is why he needs more than, more than he needs behavior modification. He needs to be reminded of the gospel. He needs to see and savor all that God has done for him through Jesus. See, this is what we call preaching the gospel to ourselves. It's taking the truths of the gospel. It's keeping our, our mind aware of those things. And it's preaching those to our heart. So we stay mindful all the time of what we have and what we are because of what God has done for us through Jesus. See, in the heat of the moment, in that peer pressure moment, he's got to learn how to apply the gospel to his heart. Preach the gospel to his heart. Okay. So with that said, over the month um, of May and kind of into this first week of June, we tried to give you and us as a church a vocabulary that reflects the gospel. Okay, so, so let me run through these real quick for you. It's going to be on the screen. Um, if you boil down all that we have and all that we are in Jesus into four statements, this would be four good statements to give you a vocabulary to address your own heart and the hearts of one another. Four statements go like this. God is great for us because of Jesus. And because of that, here's the implication. So we don't have to be in control. We don't have to live stressed out in the illusion that life is up to us, right? So we don't have to be in control. Here's statement number two, that God is good for us because of Jesus. So now we don't have to look for satisfaction elsewhere. Number three, God is gracious to us because of Jesus. So now we don't have to look for approval in other places. And here's where we're going to be camping today, that God is glorious to us because of Jesus. So we don't have to fear men. 
And here's what we're saying. Anytime you see weird behavior, it's a result of not believing one or more of these truths. So you can just test yourself. The next time you find weird behavior kind of swelling to the surface, um, ask yourself the question, is the way I'm thinking, feeling, and responding reflective of a gospel heart? And if your answer is no, ask yourself the next question. What piece or what part of the gospel am I not believing? And I think you'll be able to boil all those down to one of these four statements that, that you're, you've, you've turned from and turned from belief in that direction toward God and his gospel and toward something else. So test yourself. Okay, so today um, God is glorious is where we are. God is glorious so we don't have to fear men. So here, here's where we're going to start um, in a proverb. I'm going to read it for you and I hope that God uh, might just help raise the awareness of this issue with, with this proverb. Proverbs 29, 25 goes like this. The fear of man lays a snare. The fear of man lays a snare. It's a trap. The fear of man lays a snare, but those who trust in God are kept safe. The fear of man is a snare. Okay, so I want to start by just defining the fear of man for you. Like, what, what is the fear of man? It's not like 21st century vocabulary, right? You probably have not used fear of man in your vocabulary unless you're a little bit weird lately, right? And so fear of man is probably not like upon just your normal kind of rhythms and routine of how you talk. Like in our uh, modern day vocabulary, words like codependency, words like peer pressure, words like self-esteem, all kind of fall under, all kind of take the place of fear of man for us. But fear of man is this broad and big biblical vocabulary that encaptures all of those things, encompasses all of those things. So let me give you a definition here to kind of work with. The, and it's going to be on the screen for you. The fear of man is an excessive concern about what others think of us. An excessive concern. It's an inordinate desire for human approval or an intense fear of being rejected. Okay, so it's got like on one side, it's got this desire, this enslaving desire for approval, to be accepted, to be included, to be esteemed, right? That's, that's one desire. On the, that desire is accompanied by a fear. Like the fear is to, of being re rejected, neglected, like on the outside, not accepted, not included, right? That's the accompanying fear to go along with that. So this is fear of man. It's this excessive preoccupation with what people think about you. This desire to, to fit in and this, this huge and dominating, controlling fear of being rejected, not getting in, not being approved in the eyes of people. Um, Ed Welch wrote a book called When People Are Big and God Is Small that deals with this issue of fear of man and how the gospel kind of comes in on the other side of it and deals with it. And listen to what he says as he describes um, the fear of man. He says this, fear in the biblical sense is, much, is a much broader word. It includes being afraid of someone. Okay, so it includes, oh no, they might kill me. Okay, it includes that. That's part of it, but it's bigger than, oh no, they might kill me. Listen to what he goes on to say. But it extends to holding someone in awe, being controlled by or mastered by people. Like they, their opinion of you is so important that you're controlled by. When they say jump, you jump. When they say go, you go. Like so important that you, you're controlled and mastered by it. He goes on to say worshiping other people is fear, this fear of man. Putting your trust in people is fear of man. Or, or listen to this one. If this is your common vocabulary, I just encourage you to drill down into this. Or needing people. Like, like needing your spouse, needing this friend, needing, like needing people is, is this idea of fear of men. You're being controlled by it. You're being mastered by it. Okay, all of that fits under this broad category of how the Bible would talk about fear of man. Okay, now 
A couple of weeks ago, we talked about approval, and we looked at Genesis um, 3, where Adam and Eve sin. And do you remember what happens after they eat the fruit? That for the first time they realized that they were naked before God, that, that they needed a covering, that they were no longer presentable before God. Do you remember all, how all that plays out in Genesis 3? And, and then what are the, the first thing they do when they realize that they are naked before God, the first thing they do is grab for a covering. They go on this desperate search for approval and presentability by, by running toward other things. They sow for themselves fig leaves. And, and we talked about how a fig leaf can be a job, a fig leaf can be a family, Family, a fig leaf can be a thousand different things for us that we run to in hopes that it will give us approval and presentability. Fear of man is the big biblical category that encompasses what happens when men and women try to make other people their fig leaves. When men and women, like you and I, when we try, like Rocky, to prove that we are not a bum by impressing and getting the approval of people, that, that's the fear of man. Okay, this is what we're talking about here. And Proverbs is going to say, that is a snare for you, is a trap for you. Okay. So I want to show you what what this looks like, kind of displayed in your life and in the scriptures. We'll, We'll kind of take this from two angles. We'll start with the scriptures. The fear of man displayed kind of throughout the Bible. And okay, now, now catch this. This is such a pervasive problem. Such a pervasive and painful problem in the scriptures that we could spend all morning bouncing around from text to text to text showing you examples of this. I just want to point out three or four just to kind of whet your appetite for what this looks like throughout the Bible. So um, we'll start in Genesis chapter 12. Um, If you'll remember Genesis 12, it starts by God um, calling Abraham and saying, I'm going to make a great blessing out of you, right? I'm going to bless you and and in you, I'm going to bless the entire world, right? So this whole thing is, is, is going down. Um, Seven or eight verses later in in verse 10 of chapter 12, it says that there's a famine in the land and that they go to Egypt. Now, I want you to listen what what happens to Abraham as he goes to Egypt. And remember, if you grew up in church, this is Father Abraham, the one you sing that song about. This is that guy. And watch watch what happens. Um, Genesis 12, this is uh, verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Verse 13. Now watch fear of man play out here. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. This is Father Abraham, right? Putting his wife on the chop, chopping block here, right? I mean, is that not crazy? How does he get by with that sort of a thing? He does it again in chapter 20. Another guy, wife, your sister. He almost takes her as his husband, right? I mean, you've got this fear of man that plays out. In the moment, he is, such, he is so controlled by what other people think, what other people may do to him, that it is more promising for him to lie about his wife than to follow God. Okay, now, I mean, we could just bounce around forever here. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, the, the problem with the fear of man is so pervasive in the kind of the uh, judicial system of Israel that, uh, or that Moses has to address it. In Deuteronomy, he says this to the people of Israel. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the, the small and the great alike. See, it was so pervasive, fear of man, that here's what it was causing within the people of Israel, the judges. They, they would give favorable judgments to people up kind of the social and economic ladder, but people down the economic and social ladder, who cares what happens? to them, right? This is partiality. See, partiality is just the fruit 
Favoritism is just the fruit of, of the root of the fear of man in their heart. Um, another example of this is Saul, probably one of the clearest in, in the Bible. Saul, in 1 Samuel 15, he is given real clear and direct um, commands from God. You're going to destroy these people. Not, I mean, none of them survived this thing. And you're not taking any of their livestock. But, but Saul had a better idea. He let the king live and he takes the best of their herds, right? And now Samuel is about to confront him and listen to what Saul says in response to Samuel. Saul says, Samuel, or Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. And listen to why he says he transgressed the commandments of God. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. If he were using 21st century language, he would say, I caved to their peer pressure, right? I mean, this is the idea that the approval of those people were so important that he was willing to walk away from godly obedience to get their approval. Um, take Peter. You remember bold, kind of loudmouth Peter? You remember after Jesus was arrested, um, his boldness was beat down by the fear of man. He's not like pleading for his life before a king. He is around a fire warming his hand with a servant girl who says, hey, I, you kind of look like that crew that was around Jesus. You remember what he does? Three times, vehemently, right? With a lot of passion, denies Jesus. It, to try to stand the good graces of that little crew would, would do anything to separate himself from Jesus, Right? I mean, you see, this is fear of man that is playing itself out. Now, this is going to take us to John chapter 12. So look in John chapter 12 here, uh, down to verse 42. Now, when you think about when John starts, um, Jesus starts his ministry um, by announcing that he is the Messiah. He is the one the people of Israel have been waiting for. He spends three years of his ministry proving that, giving evidence of that, showing that. And by the time you get to John chapter 12, he has entered the city of Jerusalem, right? I mean, they're bowing down at his feet, pray, doing all that stuff. And, and at this time, you've got some that are believing in Jesus, but the vast majority are not. Right? And so Isaiah in verse 36 through 41 is giving a reason why some are believing, but most are not. And then you get to the authority, some of which are believing. And let's look at what it says about him in verse 42. Verse 42 says this, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Verse 43. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Okay, now if you were a person in first century um, kind of Israel, that, that area, the synagogue was the centerpiece of your social life. It is where all of your social capital was kind of created. It's where you would go to make friends. It's where the inner circle was and the circle you wanted to be in was. Okay, th this is the synagogue. So to be put out of the synagogue is to be put out of your relational circles. It's to kind of put you on the outside of life. Okay, th that's the whole synagogue imagery here. And, and here's what it's saying, that they had believed in God, but they were so scared of the Pharisees, of being put out of the inner ring of this group of people, they so desired the approval of the Pharisees. They so wanted a good verdict from that ring of people, though, that, that kind of group of people. They so wanted their endorsement that they would back away from Jesus in order to run toward it. Okay, th this is fear of man displayed. That they would stiff arm obedience to God so they could get the acceptance of, of this crew of people. Okay, now I think it's interesting. I think John is writing this so when you read it, you would think, what are they thinking? Like just to raise your awareness so you'll start to see, could I be like them? Could that same thing be in me? 
And and so I want to help with that and just trying to show what a fear of man might look like in your life. And here's the assumption I'm making as we kind of have this conversation. My assumption is if I followed you around for a week, we would see fear of man pop out of your life in a million different ways. And here's the second part of that assumption, that most of us are probably not overly aware that the root of that behavior is in the fear of man. So I, I want to try to help with that. Ed Welch, um, I think he clarifies with, with a quote here. Let me, let me give this to you. It'll be on the screen for you. He says, don't think that this is primarily a problem for the shy and mousy types. Mousy types. It's the angry person or the person who tries to intimidate that's also controlled by others. Any form of one-upmanship qualifies. What about the business executive who is working to be more productive than an associate in order to get ahead? The endless jockeying of egos in the corporate boardroom is an aggressive version of the fear of man. And do you think that the super confident superstar athlete is somehow above seeking the good opinions of fans and sports writers? Aggressively asserting that you don't need anyone is just as much evidence of the fear of man as the more timid examples we have seen. Fear of man comes in these packages and many others. Does it include you yet? If not, consider just one word. This is going to be a little bit painful. Evangelism. Have you ever been too timid to share your faith in Christ because of what others uh, might think of you or that you're kind of this irrational fool? And then listen to this last statement. The fear of man is such a part of our human fabric that we should check for a pulse if someone denies it. Like this is how pervasive it is in all of us in this room. That I'm just assuming if you have a pulse this morning, which I hope you do, that fear of man is accompanied with that. And so I want to just give you some diagnostic questions that I hope will be exposing for you, but good for you, a mercy for you, as God might shine light in your heart about where this issue kind of surfaces for you. So I've got 16 um, questions for you to kind of help um, you maybe see where, where this might surface. Question number one goes like this. Are you overcommitted? See, okay, now we wear like a busy schedule as a badge of honor, but that is not a badge of honor. Like when our schedules, schedules overstep what God would call us to do in life, like when we take on more than God would want us to take on, when we do things that God is not calling us to do, that is not God honoring. And listen, the reason most of our schedules are more busy than they should be is fear of man. That the reason that we can't say no when someone asks, the reason that we've always got to do it when this person asks, the reason behind all that, the reason our calendars are out of control is because we are so worried about the approval of people, about disappointing people, about letting people down, that, that we, do, we would do anything to make sure we alleviate that. We'll take on things that we shouldn't take on. We'll do things that we shouldn't do. We'll fill our schedule with a thousand different things that God has not called us to do because of the fear of man. So are you overcommitted? Like, why is that if you're overcommitted, right? Okay, here's number two for you. Do you crave compliments? Do you constantly feel underappreciated? Like, when you're serving, do you serve with one eye on what you're doing and one eye on the crowd to make sure they know what you're doing, right? I mean, you get the idea there, right? And and so is that you? Do you constantly feel underappreciated? Do you even use self-deprecating humor so that others will correct you and compliment you? See, this is all fear of man. Number three, are you a chameleon? Just like our teenager kind of peer pressured, if, if we follow, like if your home group followed you to work, would they recognize you? Your language, your behavior, your business, business ethics, the way you deal with, would they recognize you? 
And if we took your work crew, put them over in this home group context, would they recognize you? Like here. And see, for a lot of us, like these are two different worlds that we live in and we have two different people to match those worlds. And the reason we, we have this urge to blend in this crew over here, this crew over here, this language there, this behavior here, this language there, that, the, the reason we do that is fear of man. Like that's what's under the surface on that, that we're desiring the approval of people so much that we'll pretend in one of these environments. Do you see that? That's fear of man under the surface there. Number four, do you ever feel like you might be exposed as an imposter? Like if someone just knew the real you, it would be all over. Like your house of cards would come crumbling down. You ever feel like that? If you do, that is like the heart issue there is you've got an excessive preoccupation with what people think about you. Number five, do you avoid people? Like when their name comes up on caller ID, ignore is like a natural reflex of your thumb. Like when you see them passing like in the hall, you go into like avoidance, I know I didn't see them mode, right? I mean, that whole thing. Do you avoid people? See, if you avoid people underneath the surface, that's a fear of man issue. Number six, do you compare yourselves to others and feel good when you win and bad when, when uh, you lose? So in other words, like if they have that, you've got to have that. If their kids do that, your kids have to do that. If they win by four points, you have to win by five points. I mean, you see that. That's fear of man under the surface there. Number seven, do you get easily embarrassed? See, if you get easily embarrassed, it's because you've got a controlling desire in your life for the approval and the opinion of other people. Number eight, do you obsess about your body image, about your weight, about your clothes, how you look? Do you obsess about that? I mean, is that like a constant thing that you think about? If so, fear of man is under the surface. You have an excessive preoccupation with what others think about you when they see you. Like if you take like four different changes of clothes to the mirror every morning, that's an issue. Fear of man is under the surface on that. Number eight, or number uh, nine, do you shy away from hard conversations that need to happen? I, like conversations that you know God is calling you to have with people that are gonna be difficult but needed that you just won't have because you're so scared of sacrificing like your, your status before them. That's, that's all fear of man under the surface there. Number 10, is self-esteem a critical concern for you? Do you know what self-esteem is rooted in? How other people think about you. See, how you think about yourself is rooted in what other people think about you. See, it's like a vicious cycle. Like self-esteem is not a good thing. Like a God esteem is a good thing. Like knowing who you are and what you have in Jesus is a good thing. See, if you're totally bent on, if your vocabulary centers around self-esteem a lot, the opinions of other people is way too important for you. Another one for you, number 11. Do you stretch the truth to make yourself look better than you are? Now, does that hurt a little bit? Seriously. Like you know you're going to be late. They call you on the phone. You say you're going to be late. You know you're going to be 15 minutes late. But as you're on the phone, how late are you going to be? What do you say? 10 minutes Really? Like, why is that? Like, what, you see what's going on there? There is this controlling desire to fit in, this controlling desire to have a good verdict spoken about you. And by the way, white lies are still lies. We know that, right? 
It doesn't matter if they're white or black, they're still lies, right? And so fear of man motivates all that that stuff. Uh, Number 12, do you respond to criticism with defensiveness and depression? So when someone has an honest conversation that really you need at the end of the day, do you respond by blowing up and pulling back? That's fear of man if you do. As a matter of fact, if, if you do not invite and pursue correction in your life, it's probably the fear of man that causes you not to. 13, do you hide your sins and weaknesses from people? Like when you sin, is there like this natural reflex that says, I cannot tell anyone about this? 14, and this is going to be maybe a little bit painful as we think about worship and how we sing in here. As we sing, do you think more about God or about what others think of you? See, like I can't help but think that for a lot of us in here, the way we respond and express worship is controlled more by what people around us think about us than what God thinks about us. That, that, like, there's moments that we would feel like, God, an appropriate response would be to lift my hands here. Like if you get real charismatic, maybe both of them, right? And so with this controlling desire of my wife will think I'm an idiot if I do that. Comes into our mind, right? That's fear of man. Um, uh, 15, do you show favoritism? Like with these people, you act this way. With this people, you would treat them that way. That's all fear of man under the surface. And last one, number 16, do you remain silent um, as God prompts you to get to know neighbors and to talk about Jesus with others? See, evangelism is a really good, I mean, just illustration of the fear of man that we go into like vapor lock mode, right? Like when God calls us to have that conversation, it's sweating BBs before people. Now, um, fear of man for me has been a perennial battle. And I, I, God used just, uh, he was really gracious and it was really painful. He used an experience about um, six years ago to expose this in me and to bring this to the light. Now, I want to just embarrass myself in front of you as I tell you about this real quick. And so um, six years ago, I'm working on staff at a church and we are doing a strength finders test. So we read this book and then we took a test and the test would output your top three or four strengths, right? And so there's things like innovator and activator and, you know, all all sorts of cool stuff you could have been. My top strength that it spit out, the test spit out, was competition. And then we got together as a staff and we read the description of the number one strength that a person had. So here, here was the description of competition that was read in the context of a big staff meeting. We're all together. This is Rodney's strength. Let's hear it, right? Here, here it goes. Competition. Competition, Rodney, this is what you are. Competition is rooted in comparison. When you look at the world, you are instinctively aware of other people's performance. Their performance is the ultimate yardstick. No matter how hard you try, no matter how worthy your intentions, if you reached your goal but did not outperform your peers, the achievement would feel hollow. Like all competitors, listen to this, you need other people. You need other people so you can compare yourself to other people. And if you can compare, you can compete. And if you can compete, you can win. And when you win, there is no feeling like it. You like measurement because it facilitates comparison. You like other competitors because they invigorate you. You like contests because they must produce a winner. You particularly like contests where you know you have the inside track to be a winner. It's a little bit painful right there, okay? (laughs) 
Although you are gracious to your fellow competitors and even stoic in defeat, you don't compete for the fun of competing. You compete to win. And listen to this. Over time, you come to avoid contests where winning seems unlikely. I'm reading that thinking this. That is not a strength. That is sin. That's what that is. How does that get put in a strength finder's book, right? Okay, now I I want you to see just this quick point in the middle of that. Isn't it interesting how our culture takes that sin and cloaks it in a virtue? Isn't that interesting? Listen, that whole description right there, they could just write, you are terrified of people. The verdict of other people is what you live for. And they could have said just as much, right? And and so here's what we're trying to say here. This lives in you somewhere. This is in, if you've got a pulse, this is there. And so the question is, where does this surface for you? How does this come out for you? And before we move on, let let me just hit this last little idea under this. I want to just quickly say that fear of man has disastrous effects on your life, the lives of others around you, and the glory of God. I mean, think about what this does to your life when you live for the approval of people. It's like having a chain on your leg that is tied to the fickle opinion of people, to their verdict on your life. And think about what this does to other people around you. See, when you fear their opinion, you start to live for that opinion. And it makes it impossible to have conversations that are needed. It makes it impossible to be used by God as a sharp edge into their life for the glory of God. It makes it impossible for that. See, when you fear their opinion, you can no longer love people. You can just use them. You see that? It's impossible. See, this is the the weird underbelly uh, and nasty underbelly of fear of man is it makes it impossible to serve people. It makes it possible only to abuse and manipulate people. And think about the effects of this on the glory of God. When when you are living for the opinion of people, it means that you are not living for the glory of God. That when push comes to shove, you will always choose the glory of man over the glory of God. See, when you need the approval of people, it makes it impossible to love people for the glory of God. So there's disastrous effects. Okay, so we'll finish by talking about how to dislodge this idea of the fear of man. How the fear of man is displaced in our life, dismantled, what it is that comes in and overpowers it. Okay, so John chapter 12. I want you to see verse um, 42 and 43 again with just an eye on verse 43. And John's going to help us out here and showing us how, how like movement is made as it relates to the fear of man. Verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Verse 43 is our clue here. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Like the glory that comes from man had displaced and had dethroned the glory that comes from God. And so I think it raises this question as you read that. What glory, the glory of man or the glory of God, holds most weight in your life? Has the the position of authority in your life? Like what, what one of those holds the most weight for you? The glory of God, the glory of man. And listen, and it's going to show us how it is that we go about running from the glory of man. Okay, so, so I want you to pay careful attention to the next just couple of sentences here. Your solution to the fear of man is not 12 steps. It's not. There's not a method that you're going to have that will overcome the fear of man in your life. Okay, now listen to this. 
The only way you dismantle and dislodge the fear of man is by having an overpowering and an overshadowing view of God. It is only by seeing God in all of his grandeur. It's only when a glimpse of the glory of God looms so large in your heart, lingers so long in your mind that you will start to overcome the fear of man. It's the only way to do it. See, maybe you could think of it this way. If people are swollen in your life, in other words, they carry way too much weight. You want their approval way too much. If people are swollen in your life, here is why that's happening. Because your view of God has shrunk and it's shriveled. But when our view of God begins to inflate into what it really is, the natural byproduct of that, the natural consequence of us seeing God for who he is, is that our view of people naturally begins to deflate. See, this is the only way you can do it. You can't do it by trying to tell yourself to stop doing it. You can only do it by you seeing a bigger picture of God. So I want to finish today just by trying to give you a glimpse of the glory of God. Just to give you kind of an inside track, maybe two or three passages that you can run to when fear of man starts to creep in on you that will hopefully blow up and enlarge and inflate who God is in your mind and in your heart. Okay, now when we say glory, Um, I think it's important that we define that because in 21st century language, the the definition of glory is a little bit different than what the Bible would use. It's like language changes over time. So when we use it now, it's a little different than then. It's like we would use glory to say the same thing as maybe great or um, incredible. Like we would say that that steak was glorious. Or we might say that uh, that shot that Dirk hit at the end of the game was glorious. Amen? Okay, good. And we, we might need a few more of those tonight, okay? So, so th- we, we think in these terms when we think glorious. It's a synonym for great. But that is not how the Bible describes glory, right? Glory is just like saying God is great is not the same as saying a steak is great. Saying God is glorious is not the same thing as saying Dirk shot is glorious. Okay, when we say glory, like when we talk about the glory of God, that means, or that is, we're saying there, that means that it, it's, it's all that God, or it's, it's God possessing like essentially ultimate worth, him possessing ultimate beauty, ultimate excellence. It's saying that God has everything you would want. He possesses ultimate, infinite worth, beauty, and excellence. When you look at the Hebrew word um, for glory, it has this idea of weight or weightiness or heaviness. And here's what it's saying. It's not like, like physically he weighs like 3,000 pounds. It's not that. When it says weight or heaviness, it's saying that in your life, this is the heaviest, the most weighty, the most influential thing in your life. It causes the most change in you. It is the biggest thing to you. So when we say the glory of God, we are saying that the the glory of God, all he is, that he possesses ultimate worth, beauty, and significance, all of that, we're saying that when we say glory, that God is glorious, that that, who God is, has the biggest influence. It has the highest priority in our life. It's the weightiest, the heaviest thing about us. And I want you to listen to this quote from John Owen. Puritan from a few centuries ago, as he describes why it's so important to have a great glimpse of the glory of God. Listen to what he says. It'll be on the screen for you. He says, only a sight of God's glory, his glory will truly satisfy God's people. The hearts of believers, people who have professed faith in Jesus, the hearts of believers are like a magnetized needle, which cannot rest until it is pointing north. 
so also a believer will always be restless until he or she comes to Christ and beholds his glory, his weightiness, his grandeur, all that he is. See, see what we're doing here? Okay, Isaiah chapter 6. I want to give you just a couple of pictures and we'll, we'll finish up. Isaiah 6. Isaiah is going to get an inside shot at the glory of God. He's going to get a, a great glimpse of the glory of God. In Isaiah 6 verse 1, it says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. So, so here's what's happening. Isaiah ha has been given a grace from God. He, he's getting to see this glimpse of God. And the first thing he sees when he kind of peers around the edge of the door and looks into this temple is a God who is lifted up. He is high. He is on his throne. And here's what he's seeing here. He is seeing a God who is ultimate in power. Like he is an all-powerful, dominant ruler of the universe, that God. Like he's really seeing a God here, like a Psalms 115 version of God, that our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Like an Isaiah version a little bit later on, um, when he's going to say that he plans the end from the beginning. He is seeing a view of God that is high and exalted and lifted up, the dominant, the all-powerful ruler of the universe. He, he gets this glimpse of God. Okay, he goes on. In the year that King Uzziah, Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. That's a wedding kind of analogy there. When it's talking about the train of his robe, that's talking about the beauty of God. And when we talk about the beauty of God, that is not a feminine, like, quality character, right? When we talk about the beauty of God, theologically, here's what that means. That he is the sum of and contains all things desirable. So everything that you would look at on this planet and say, that's, that's nice. He is the sum of all of that. Those are just an over, kind of a, a, a spill over on the canvas of creation of all that God is. That he is beautiful. So Isaiah looks inside the temple and not only is God high and lifted up, but the view of God is like, it, it captures him. It's beautiful. It's desirable. And then he goes on, verse 2, Above him stood the two seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two they covered his feet, or he, the seraphim, covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now when you think about angels in the Bible, seraphim are angels. When you think about angels in the Bible, they're sinless. They are spotless and without soil. They are magnificent creatures. Typically what happens when a man bumps into an angel in the Bible, they want to fall down and worship that, that angel. And so now, now look at the picture here of what's going on angels in the presence of God, these magnificent, sinless creatures, in the presence of God, they have to cover their eyes because God is so glorious, so awe-inspiring. Okay, and keep reading here, verse 3. And one of these seraphim called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. This glimpse of God that Isaiah is getting, that glimpse of God, now listen to this, I don't know if you've ever been in a room with a person that you really fear, that you really desire their approval, but I can probably guarantee you this, that when they are in that room, that the threshold is not shaking. The building is not coming undone. But this is what's happening when you get God in a room and people praising him. Look at verse 5. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isn't it amazing that when we get a glimpse of the glory of God, how, how natural it is to say, I, yeah, I've sinned there. How easy it is to confess sin when, when we get a picture, picture of the glory of God, a glimpse of the glory of God. 
Like we stop worrying about what other people think. We stop worrying about their approval. And as we start to live in the approval of that one God, that glorious God that really matters, it becomes really easy to say, woe is me. Woe is me. And look what it goes on to say in verse six and seven. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. That is one of the clearest, just foreshadowings of what God would do for us in Jesus. That because Jesus came and lived a perfect life in place of our imperfect life, died an undeserving death in place of our deserved death, now when we put our faith in him, trusting and treasuring Jesus, our guilt is taken away. Our sin is atoned for. Isn't that beautiful? This is what Jesus has done for us. That glorious and great God, threshold-shaking God, that God becomes our good dad. We're adopted sons and daughters of God, pulled into the family. Flip to Revelation chapter 1. We're almost done here. Revelation 1. <clears throat> now, you know, it's interesting. When, when, when I ask the question, um, what, what it, like when you think Jesus, what, what mental images come into your mind? I think with, with almost certainty, most people think in terms of on a cross, bloody and beaten, um, they think of a Jesus who is willing to be mocked, a Jesus that willing to be spit upon, a willing to be beaten senseless, right? Okay, now I want to make sure that picture is balanced with Revelation's picture of Jesus. So I want you to see this picture in Revelation 1 that forms, when you think Jesus, this needs to fit into your equation of Jesus. Revelation 1, verse 12. This is John exiled on an island. He's been given a vision of God, and here's what he says. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now listen to verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That is a picture of the glory of God. I fell at his feet although dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Isn't it crazy to think we would exchange the glory, the opinion, the favor of that God for the opinion of this person. Isn't it almost ridiculous and silly to think about that? That in the heat of the moment, we would crave so badly the opinion of that little inner ring, that person right there, whoever that person is, we would crave that so much that we would stiff arm that picture of God. Will you do this for me? Um, will you close your eyes? And, and I want you to get a mental image of a person that, that you would typically struggle with the fear of man just with. That when you're around them, your behavior changes. Your language changes. How you, how you respond to people changes. Like when you're around that person, like the heart starts beating a little bit faster maybe. That could be a husband, that could be a wife. That, that you are controlled by their verdict on your life. Their opinion on your life. Whoever that person is, maybe that's a group of people, maybe that's a team, 
whoever, whoever that is, I want you to just get a mental picture of them. And beside that mental picture of them, I want you to see this and develop this mental picture of Jesus. Revelation 19, verse 11. So you've got mental picture of this person. Here comes mental picture of Jesus forming. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in his righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on his white horse. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now look up here at me. Is it not just foolish that we would live in fear of that person, of this person, of that group of people, when that great God is on the other side of that? I mean, is it not just—it's almost silly to think about, isn't it? I mean, that, that we would live with this controlling desire to have their approval when on his white horse, flaming eyes, sword coming out of his mouth, big tattoos down his side, king of kings, Jesus, is sitting on the other side of that. It's crazy. So I'll give you a preaching um, to yourself example, and then, then we'll finish up. Um, I wish six years ago when that fear of man was exposed in me that I could say that that was given like this death blow and that we are done with that. No longer have to deal with that issue. But that's not the case. And it's not the case for any of our lives. And, and so I want to give you just um, one kind of a situation here. About two, maybe two and a half years ago, I, find, I found myself sinning in a surprisingly bold and ridiculous way. And everything in me once that was kind of exposed and the awareness happened, everything in me went like this. Here was the self-talk. Rodney, you cannot let anyone know about that. No one can get inside that little circle, right? This is for you and for you to struggle with for the rest of your life. What would people think if they know about that? What would your reputation become? What would people, you know, what would their verdict of you become? How would your status change? What would your reputation, what would happen there? Like this whole self-talk built on the fear of man started to dominate. Like it was this, you need to struggle with this alone in isolation. You cannot tell anyone about this. And in that moment, preaching the gospel to myself was so, so important. And here's what it sounded like. Um, Rodney, that is the voice of the fear of man. That that is the voice of you exchanging the glory of God for the glory of man. For, for you exchanging the praise of God for the praise of, of this group of people. Rodney, you have good friends, but they are not glorious. Only God is that. Only God carries that sort of weight and heaviness. So Rodney, Picture Revelation 19, Jesus, and picture this person that you know you need to confess that to and you need to walk in community with as you deal with that. Picture Revelation 19, Jesus beside them. And, and what does that picture of Revelation 19, Jesus do to, to this person that you need to confess to? It makes him like a person that I don't have to prove myself to. It makes him a person that's a human like me 
that, that I don't have to depend on their verdict for my life, for my approval. God is glorious, Rodney. You don't have to fear what others think. And I pray that you, that us, would be able to admonish our own hearts and the hearts of one another like that. Amen? Let's pray. We are going to uh, finish this morning by taking communion. And I think it's just a fitting end to kind of where we are at this point in um, this set of sermons. We've just finished these four G's um, that God is great, so we don't have to be in control. That God is good for us, so we don't have to look for satisfaction elsewhere. That God is gracious, so we don't have to live with a constant need to try to prove, you know, prove ourselves. And that God is glorious, so we don't have to fear men. And I think this would be a fitting just point in all of that to just ask the question, what do you need to repent of in the midst of that? What do you need to be able to confess, to get out in the open, to walk kind of with community as you, as you battle through those things? Like, what is that that needs to be thrown out? So as we take communion, there's, there's two different fences that are around the table. The first fence is that you have to be a believer in Jesus. So that means that you have had to have trusted and treasured Jesus, that you hold up your life and say, God, will you save me? And so that's fence number one. And if you have not done that, then rather than coming up and, and taking communion, our encouragement to you today would be to take Jesus, to, to believe in Jesus, to, to trust and treasure Jesus, to give Jesus your life. But the second fence is for believers. And so the second fence is, if you're a believer in the room, you need to be in right standing before God. That means that known sin in your life is confessed. That, that means that repentance is happening, that you're turning from a belief in those things and you're redirecting that belief towards all that God has given you through Jesus in the gospel. So um, if you have not done that, if, you, if you've not repented of those areas, I, I'd invite you to repent before you take communion with us this morning. And here is the great news of the gospel. As we dip the, the bread and kind of into the juice and we take communion this morning, here's the great news of what that's speaking and what that's saying and what that's symbolizing. That Jesus was broken and his blood was spilled for you to cover all of your sin. So where you are looking to other things for satisfaction, it's covered this morning. But where you are looking for other things um, to prove yourself, that, that is covered this morning. Where, where your fear of man issues surface, that is covered this morning. Where your anxiety and this need to control, that is covered this morning because of what God has done for us in Jesus. So God, we love you. God, you are so, so good to us. God, will you help us? God, by your Holy Spirit, by your grace, will you give us a bigger view of you? Will you give us glimpses of the glory of God? These Isaiah 6 glimpses, these Revelation 1 glimpses, these Revelation 19 glimpses so that we can push down and we can overcome and we can get freedom from the fear of others. God, will you do that for us this morning? We, we humbly ask. God, we know that it's by your grace that those things happen. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us to repentance this morning. That, that we would be fine with confessing sin this morning. And it is in your good name that we pray all of that. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.